Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. It is Thursday, February the 16th, 2023. It is currently 8.43 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. What do you do? What do you do when a text doesn't seem to make sense? Because it seems to speak of something that that either one, we can't really understand or seems to just contradict the reality that we experience. What do we do? I, here's kind of my rule of thumb. This is kind of my hermeneutical principle 101. Whenever we come to a passage that is complicated or it just seems that, wait a minute, it seems to be saying this, but that's clearly not what we experience. Now, what you have to do sometimes is take a step back and just kind of say, here's what we know for sure. Here's what is just an absolute, objective, dogmatic fact. And whatever we, we do with this text cannot obviously contradict that objective Absolute fact. Let me give you an example. This is the best I, I can come up with for now. I, maybe, maybe I could come. Let me state this again. I could probably come up with something better, but this is my go-to one. So I'm just going to use it right now. So let me explain. There are scriptures that seem to say things like, by his stripes, we are healed. There are scriptures that speak of healing. There are scriptures that seem to speak that you're healed because of your faith. There's all of these scriptures that are spoken of uh, about healing, about these signs will follow those who believe that seem to include maybe divine healing. There's these passages that seem to talk about healing, 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 healing. And people will go and they'll make a list of all of these scriptures saying, see, divine healing is guaranteed. We can be, and in fact, they will go so far to say that by his stripes, we are healed. So this means that by, because of the death of Jesus Christ in the atonement, physical healing is guaranteed for this life. And they would have a lots of scriptures that would seem to indicate that, right? They would say, I've got this scripture. I've got this scripture. I've got this scripture. I've got this scripture. Others would say, no, 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 no. But what about this scripture and this scripture? And everyone will just try to attack each other with, you know, basically it's death by cross-referencing. I've got six verses. I've got 10 verses. My verses are better than your verses. Well, you need to understand my verses. You need to understand your verses in light of my verses. And they would say, no, you need to understand your verses in light of my verses. And everyone's like, compare scripture with scripture. And then it just goes on and on and on and on and on and on. And no one ever really comes to any agreement. Nobody's really listening to each other. Everyone's talking past each other. And at some point you just want to scream and say, make it stop, make it go away you know, get me out of here. Right? I just put me on a deserted island where I don't have to listen to anyone. And it's frustrating. So my, so for example, when it comes to this argument about divine healing, instead of everyone fighting about cross-referencing, here's what I know. This is an absolute objective fact. There are Christians who have great faith. In fact, I will argue which requires the greater faith believing that God can heal you or living with a terminal disease and suffering year after year after year. I think it takes far more faith not to be healed than it does to be healed, right? So I, so I will say that this, this, this is the objective fact. 
There are Christians who pray and beg and plead God for a certain disease or a certain physical element or whatever the case be to be taken away, and it's never taken away. I know this, that unless Jesus returns, every single Christian, no matter how much they believe, no matter how much they pray, you know what's going to happen? They're going to get older. And guess what? They're going to, they're going to start developing lots of health issues depending on the lifestyle that they've lived or basically or sometimes based on their genetic makeup. They may have everything, lose their eyesight, hearing. They may end up with high blood pressure, high cholesterol, heart problems, knee problems, back problems. You just go on and on and on and on. And they're going to get weaker and weaker and they're going to die. And I don't care how much they pray. That's going to happen. So you can say healing is guaranteed all day, but everything around you screams, clearly it's not. So if we have the objective fact saying healing is not guaranteed, then any scripture that seems to imply that it is, (laughs) you've got to then say, "Mm, I don't know if I can go with that. That's a fact. That's just an objective fact. Here's another objective fact. Are you ready? Here's an objective fact. As a believer, as a Christian who believes in the word of God, who believes in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ upon the cross, who believes in penal substitution, who believes in what Jesus Christ did and believes in and wants to live for God, that here's an absolute fact about every Christian who I just described. They have a sinful nature. And they will continue to sin in thought, word, and deed, and externally and internally by what they do and and what's going on inside as well. They are going to continue to sin from the moment of salvation all the way to the point of glorification. They're going to sin. I can give you three, three easy scriptures. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. No Christian ever does that anywhere close to per- perfect, so they're in a perpetual state of sin. Love your neighbor as yourself. We never do that because we tend to love ourselves more than we love our neighbor. And be ye holy as God is holy. We will never accomplish those three ever in any way, shape, or form, nowhere close to perfection. In fact, any lack of conformity in thought, word, or deed whether internally or externally, to the perfect standard of God, which is his holiness, any lack of conformity to his holiness and thought, word, or deed, internally or externally, makes places us in sin. So we are perpetually in a state of sin. That is a fact. Cannot be denied. So whatever you, whenever you go to the scriptures and you read any scriptures about, well, you can do this and you can do this and you've been freed from this and you're freed from that and all of these scriptures, you have to at least interpret them in light of this fact. You can't interpret them in a way that denies the reality that everyone in your church, everyone in my church, everyone listening tonight live, you continue to sin. You've already sinned today. I've sinned countless ways today. I will sin later. I will sin early. If I stay up all night, I'll sin probably 50 different ways. If I, even if I go to sleep, okay, I'll probably sin even then because I have a sinful nature. That's a fact. And sometimes Christians want to just deny fact. No, healing is guaranteed because of the atonement. It's not. It's not. It can't be. 
There's too many facts that demonstrate it. Hey, now that you're a Christian, you can say yes to God and no to sin, and you can be perfect, and you can do this. I mean, I mean, well, well, actually, no, you can't do it the way you're describing it. And even many cases, they will backtrack and say, well, well, I mean, we can't do it perfect. They start making excuses. And we've been talking about this over and over and over and over and over. If you listen to our series on law and gospel, 70 plus hours working through some of these issues. If you listen to uh, a lot of my, te- my my series on Romans, you hear lots of this teaching. If you listen to my the little mini series we did on Romans chapter seven, you heard this. If you listen to my sermon review from earlier today on Romans chapter eight, guess what? Um, once again, we talked about this. This has been a an ongoing subject for really a part of 2022 and definitely in 2023. And it's and look, it's not it's not it's not made me popular with a lot of people, and a lot of people have gotten ticked off with me. A lot of people have tried to argue with me, but the one thing they can't argue is this: they still sin. <laughs> Usually, sometimes in the way they act or their gossip or slander, they demonstrate that they're still sinning while trying to prove to me, no, 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 we can do it while they're sinning, which is kind of ironic that, hey, you know what? I'm going to prove to you that I have the power to do it while I'm sinning because of the way I'm talking about you and gossiping about you and slandering you and being disrespectful and not showing any reverence or respect to authority in any way, shape, or form. I mean, it's, it's kind of ironic. Now, why am I, why have I spent nine minutes and 38 seconds trying to establish some of this? Because sometimes in hermeneutics, you are left with these confusing things and all you can do is cling to what is objectively seen, what, what, what you can know. Because so, and, and the reason we have to do that is there's, I hate that this is a reality, but there's so much that you just kind of like, I'm not so sure. And, and you know, a good way to know why you're not sure. Because it's for 2,000 years, Christians have been arguing and fighting about it and nobody can come to an agreement. That's a good sign. So then I fall back going, okay, I'm going to continue to reach to know it. But in the meantime, I'm going to establish, like, here's the table, right? Here's the table. I'm going to establish a firm foundation that while I'm still trying to reach for it, Right? I'm still trying to reach for it. I have this foundation to stand on, and these are the things that are objective. It's kind of borrowing from Casey Kasem, you know, the top 40 countdown. You know, keep reaching, keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars. Yeah, a little bit of cliche, cliche there, but you get the idea. We have to, we have to stand firm on what we can know. Or you'll spend your life out there trying to chase these things that you think you know, but nobody is certain because no one's been able to figure it out. We have to rely on these objective things that we can know. And some things are just so objective. For example, some things we just know we're going to keep sinning. I'll, I'll try to make it even more practical. Christians can run around all day. They can run around all day. And they can yell and they can scream and they can preach. And they can lose their voice like I am. Okay. They can run around, scream, yell, and preach that, hey, if you're in Christ, you're a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. Well, that's actual scripture. But wait a minute. We know we have to interpret this in a specific way because we have reality, right? For example, wait a minute. I'm a new creature. Old is gone and everything is new. So you mean I no longer have a sinful nature? 
Sin, all, all sin is removed from me? Because if everything is new, well, the, and I'm a new creature and the old is gone and everything is new, then that means there is no more sin dwelling in me. So then why do I continue to sin if that is true practically? In which then I come along and go, no, 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 no. That is true of me positionally. And what Paul is telling them is when, when we look at our fellow believer, we see them as a new creature because that is what they are in their position in Christ because of his imputed righteousness. That's not what we are practically because we still have a sin nature and we continue to sin. So obviously the old is not gone. You see, when it comes to Christianity, we always have to, re- we always have to realize this. There is a positional reality about us positionally, here's what's true of me. I am declared to be perfect, holy, righteous, obedient. I am a new creature positionally. The old is gone. I am dead to sin. I have died to sin because I'm united to Christ. And in my union in Christ, guess what happened? I've been crucified. The old man is dead. The body of sin is dead. This is true positionally, right? I've been crucified positionally. I'm united to Christ in his death. I have been buried and I have been raised to walk in newness of life. But all of that's true positionally. It is absolute truth. Now in practice, guess what? Oh, I'm very much alive. My sinful nature, very much alive. My flesh, very much alive. My wrong way of thinking, very much alive. My wrong way of feeling, very much alive. And so the Christian life is the never-ending and possible task of trying to live out practically what is true positionally. But we have some passages that some people are like, no, see, that describes the practical reality. Well, if it described the practical reality, then you would say, I have no sin nature and I can be perfect. Well, no, 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 no. You, You still have a sin nature and you can't be perfect. Well, then that can't be describing my, like, for example, you can't say that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature, old things have passed away, all things have become new, and say that's describing the practical reality of a Christian, because then that would mean I have no sin nature, and basically I, would, I, I should be able to stop sinning. That is describing my position. This is the only way this even comes, like, if you don't get this down, I think you end up with just chaos. You end up with this weird, like, No, you can do it. But I mean, in reality, you can't. You've got power, but I mean, the power is limited. You can be, you can say yes to God God and notice it. I mean, but you can't do it perfectly. Like it's this weird, like you can, but you really can't. You are new, but you're really not. And, And that to me is maddening. We have to have some way of explaining it. And so we have our position and then we have the practical reality. And then we have the glorified future where will we, we will be perfect. We will be without sin. We've got, so we've got our positional reality, the practical reality, and then the future glorified reality. What we are positionally, we will be in eternity when we're glorified. In the meantime, practically, what we are practically demonstrates why we need the imputed righteousness because we're never, we're going to fall short continually in a practical way. Now, I bring all of this up because I got an email, like I said, uh, I said a minute ago. Give me a second here. I got to open up my email. I got this email at 4.03 p.m. They give their name, which obviously I never give. 
says, I'm a huge fan of your Theology Central podcast. Well, thank you so very much. I'll be sending you a check for $50 for saying such nice things. Okay, I'm joking. All right, but if you do listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please, 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 this is one thing you can always do for us. If you are listening to us on Apple Podcasts or if you have access to the Apple Podcast app, even if you don't listen to us, find us and give us a review and a five-star rating. That's always very beneficial and helpful. If you're listening on Pandora, thumbs up. That's always good. If you're listening to us on YouTube, thumbs up. Anything positive would be good. If you're listening to us on the Sermons 2.0 app, Write a positive comment, not a negative one. That would be good. So many different things. All right, but here we go. Here is the email. Here is the email. I'm a huge fan of the Theology Central podcast, and I have a question no one can answer, and I need help. Here we go. If Paul tells the Colossians in chapter 3 to put to death the sinful and earthly things lurking in us, but we cannot live this life sinless, How can we reconcile these two truths? All right, I've got to do this. I got to do this. I got to do this. All right, I'm going to read it again. I'm going to read it again. If Paul tells the Colossians in chapter three to put to death the sinful and earthly things lurking in us, but we cannot live this life sinless, then how can we reconcile these two truths? This is what I have to say to someone who would see that problem and ask that question. Let me read the question again. If Paul tells the Colossians in chapter 3 to put to death the sinful and earthly things lurking in us, but we cannot live this life sinless, then how can we reconcile these two truths? Once again, someone seeing the problem and asking that question. All right, so how do we reconcile this? What do we do? How do we handle this? Well, I don't know if we're going to, we're not going to get all the answers tonight. So please, you're going to be, I mean, just don't be disappointed, but we're going to at least try to bring up some issues. And I've already kind of given you a hint, right? Let's go to what we do know. I don't know how to reconcile these truths, but here's what I do know. I'm going to keep sinning and you're going to keep sinning in some way, shape or form. Because again, any lack of conformity to holiness is sin That's you. (laughs) That's you, ladies and gentlemen. That is you. So that's so. Whatever we do with this, we have to establish this. So let's go to Colossians three. Let's place it in context. If Colossians three verse one starts with "If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God." Let's start right. Stop right here. Now immediately you see that this is being written as a challenge that you need to do this. Like, like it's not automatic. Hey, if you've been risen with Christ, well then seek those things above where Christ sitteth on the right hand, uh, uh, on the right hand of God. If you, the, if ye they've been risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Immediately we know this is like a command. This is a challenge, but it's the assumption here is that it's just not going to naturally happen, right? If it's going to naturally happen, you wouldn't have to tell someone to do it. Hey, seek those things. You wouldn't have to say seek them because it would just naturally happen. Why does it not just naturally happen? 
You're a believer. It should just naturally happen. It doesn't naturally happen. You know why it doesn't naturally happen? It's because you are a believer saved by an imputed righteousness. But guess what's still inside you? A sinful nature. And the sinful nature doesn't automatically want to seek the things above. The sinful nature wants to seek the things below. The sinful nature doesn't want to seek that which is of God. It wants to seek that which is of self. It doesn't want to seek to glorify God. It wants to seek to glorify self. That is what is naturally in us. That's why we constantly sin and we're selfish and we're arrogant and we're judgmental and we're prideful because that's the natural way we function. And again, we're saved by an imputed righteousness. So immediately, this is obviously saying we need to do these things. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Now, for you are dead and your life is hid with Christ and God. Now, wait right here. If I'm dead and my life is hid with Christ and God, then you think if I'm dead, then I would naturally be seeking and I would be naturally setting. So how can I be dead? Well, I'm dead in my position. That's the only way, and, and I'm just going to work through this. I know people are going to offer counter arguments, but the only way I can understand this is I am dead. See, in my union in Christ, in my union with Christ, by faith, I am united to him. And guess how, where I'm united with him? This is true of me and my union with Christ. In Christ, this is in Christ, not practically, but in Christ, or we can call it positional. In Christ, guess what? I was united, I'm united with him in his death, there I am. I've died in his burial, or we could say this, in his crucifixion. Let's do that. So I've been crucified positionally, died. I'm dead positionally, buried. I've been buried and I've been resurrected to walk a new life. All of that is clearly not true practically because I'm obviously very much alive. So I'm not been crucified. Obviously I'm very much alive. So obviously I'm not dead. Obviously I'm still very much alive. I've not been buried. And I would hope that I'm going to walk a new life in practice, but that new life, no matter how good I think it is, it's still tainted with sin. So it's never truly new because the old is always with me. So the only way to understand this is I'm dead positionally. So since I'm dead and my life is hid with Christ, for ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. That is true. Positionally, I am dead. Future, in the future, I will be with him. But I'm hid with him now in Christ. In Christ, where am I? In Christ, what am I? Oh, I am perfect, holy, righteous because of imputed righteousness. Where am I? I'm in Christ in heavenly places. I'm seated at the right hand of the Father in Christ, in Christ, and I'm dead. In right here on earth, I'm very much right here alive. I got desires. I got wants. I got needs. I have struggles. And then look what it says mortify, therefore, your members. Now, wait a minute. Now, he's back to telling me something I have to do. Now, because he's telling me to mortify my members means, now, wait a minute. He just said I'm dead. If I'm dead, why do I need to mortify anything? For ye are dead. Mortify. Wait a minute. If I'm dead, look at, look at, I'm going to read this from a different translation. 
for you died and your life is hidden with Christ. Well, if I died, then why are you going to tell me right here in verse five, therefore put to death? The word mortify, some translate it put to death. Well, wait a minute. I'm dead. Why am I putting anything to death? Hey, put to death what is already dead. That makes no sense. No, no, no. I'm dead in my position. Now, in practice, and see, think about it. In my position, where am I? I'm, well, I'm in heaven. I'm seated right there next to Christ, right? I don't need to seek those things that are above. I'm there positionally. But practically, where am I? Right here on earth. And I have to constantly struggle to set my affections on the. So think about it this way. In, and this is just the way the Christian life is lived out. Now, try to explain this all the time. We try as believers to live out positionally the reality. I'm sorry. We try to live out in practice what is true positionally. We try to live out practically the reality of our position. We try to live out the positional reality in a practical way. But we never do it perfectly. So positionally, I'm in Christ. I'm in heaven. I'm at the right hand. I'm dead. That's true positionally. Practically, now I have to live that out by seeking those things that are above. I have to live out this positional death by putting to death what is in me. That's what I'm called to do. So therefore, what does it say? Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth fornication, uncleanliness, inordinate affection, evil uh, concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Concupiscence, if I can say the word right. Concupiscence and covetousness, which is idolatry. And concupiscence is actually described as, as, let me see here, and other translations. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry, right? So I think it's evil desire, is concupiscence, is, uh, equal, uh, is evil desire, strong evil desire, all right? So I, I think you can see how this works out. All right, I got, wasn't prepared. I, I had, when I first look at this, I wasn't looking at it in the King James and completely forgot that word is there and I was looking at the other, so I wasn't. It caught me off guard. Come look, wait a minute. Why is that word there? It should be evil desire. All right, but you get the idea. So here's the, here's the concept. We're dead positionally. Practically, we're not dead. And since we're not dead, what do we have to do? We have to start this process of mortifying, therefore, your members. Now, here's the question. Will you ever, ever accomplish putting all of that to death. Does the text imply that you're going to accomplish? And please now, I like the way it says, look at this. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. Meaning the earthly nature is still there. Their earthly nature is still there. Uh, this says, mortify therefore your members. But this this is what is still connected to your members, your earthly. Look, here's here's the reality. Even as a Christian, you still have a body that is corrupted by sin, and you still have that sin nature. So we are dead, but we're not dead. We're dead positionally. We're not dead practically. So the question is, does this text say that you're going to put them to death perfectly, permanently? I think it's an ongoing battle where you're trying to kill it, and it's, in a sense, coming back, and you're trying to get rid of it, and it's a never-ending fight. 
I don't think it ever fully happens here until glorification within the entire sinful nature is eradicated and we have a new body, a glorified body that's no longer, um, it's no longer uh, struggling with a sin nature. I think that's the, I think that's the right, right way to understand it. I think that's the only way to understand it. Now let's do a couple of things really quick. We'll do a couple things, and we'll, and I will make sure that I got concupiscence. I will make sure I stated that correctly here in a minute, but let's do this. Let's go to the Blue Letter Bible app, because that's our go-to app when we're working on some of these things. Let's go to Colossians chapter 3. Let's go to verse 5. And mortify. Mortify is this Greek word. Strong's G, 3499, Necrao. 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 I don't say it exactly right. Texas accent. Okay, you got it. Necrao. All right. Necrao is used three times. Two times be dead, one time mortify. Necrao is Strong's definition is to deaden. Now, I like that. To deaden. Figuratively, to subdue, to be dead, mortify. The outline of biblical usage, to make dead, to put to death, slay, worn out of an impotent old man, to deprive, deprive of power, destroy the strength thereof, all right? So I think it's the idea that we are, I think, continually attempting to put to death. We're continually trying to deprive it of power. We're continually trying to destroy the, the strength of it. But I do not think in any way, shape, or form it ever truly occurs. Now, what are we, what are we to put to death? Um, fornication. Let's stop right there. Fornication. Let's see if all the translations go with uh, tra- uh, fornication here. Sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. Now, let's go with Jesus' definition of sexual immorality. If I look at a woman... And lust is there, I'm guilty. Now, I'm I, again. I'm, I can't speak for women. I try not to speak for women because I've never been a woman, right? I can't. I can't. I can't see how they, what they feel. But I, I guarantee you, it's probably there in a similar way. But I will speak to men. Come on, come on. How frequently? How, how frequently is lust present? Come on. You see something. You start thinking it. Now, you may, you may, you may put it away quickly. But, oh, but you st- And the minute it starts, the minute it starts there, you may, you may do a good job trying to stop it, trying to stop it. But the pre- clearly it's, pre- it's showing that the flesh is still there and the sinful nature is still there. And you start lusting. Sometimes longer than others. Right? Sometimes it's not even something you see. You just start having thoughts or desires. Oh, come on. Come on, let's not pretend like we're in Sunday school and everyone's got to act like they're holy and right. That means clearly it's not been put to death. Now, you're constantly fighting to try to put it to death. Um, um, Fornication, uncleanliness. Uncleanliness. Now, uncleanliness is described here as... 
sexual immorality, impurity. Now that uncleanliness, let's look at that. Let's look it up. Let's look up the Greek word. Let's look up the Greek word here. Let's go back. Let's look up the Greek word. Uh, fornication, uncleanliness. All right. Uh, uncleanliness is this Greek word. Here we go. Ready? Strong's G-167. Akatharsia. 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 I'm going to try to be very, try to enunciate. Akatharsia. Now, Akatharsia means Strong's definition, impurity, physical or morally uncleanliness, uncleanliness. It can mean uncleanliness, physical, in a moral sense. This, the impurity of lustful, luxurious living, of impure motives. This is even going after impure motive. Now, everyone may try to connect it to sexual desire, but this is impure. How many times have your motives not been pure? Oh, do you want to get, do you want to get really, uh, all right. Um, if you have children, you may, you may want to, you know, move them away, but let, let's, let's get down. Let's, let's take the cookies off the top shelf and put them right down there on the countertop so everyone can get to it, right? Let's not make this high and mighty and academic. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. How many people, I'll just say men, tried to do something super nice for someone, bought someone a gift, got them something on February the 14th, but their motive was that they were giving because they were expecting to get. It was more of a transactional situation. They weren't buying a gift or getting a card or saying something purely to show love and not wanting or expecting or even hoping for any. Their motives were simply, I love you and I want to express it to you, even though I'm not getting anything in return. See, when you're doing something in order to get, how pure is said? Oh, I know it just got really quiet. All of a sudden it got really, really, really quiet. How many times does someone do something and, and, the, and the action is good, but the motive is selfish? I talk about it all the time and it, and it, and it, 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 it's something that can I love someone with a pure love, a pure love that I, I, that I, that you love them and, and you don't get anything back. The greatest example of this is loving your enemy. How can you love your enemy when you're not going to get anything back? That that's, well, we fall short of that every single day. Which, which once again, so, so we, to, to mortify this is to mortify uncleanliness is any impure motive. I'm, give me a break. You're never going to, if, if, if the sexual immorality is a never ending curse, the impure motive is a constant thing in, in the, in the church. Okay. You, you want to hear something? I wonder how many times. I wonder when churches promote some big evangelism 
movement or some outreach movement to bring as many people to the church. I wonder how many times that deep, deep down, nobody's looking. The concern is, wait a minute. We got to continue to bring people in because we keep losing people. We got to maintain the numbers because we got a building to pay for. We got staff to pay for. So we need evangelism. We need outreach. And we say we're doing the outreach to bring people to Jesus, but we're doing outreach because we need their money. Give you an example. Let's say that for this podcast, let's say that I did a lot of asking for money. Right, I, rare, I rarely mention it, but let's say that I monetize my podcast or that I told everyone, look, I need, you know, because I mean, I honestly do. I need, I need a, a, a certain amount of money every month for this, for this to operate, right? So I do. I, look, I need, like if, if I, 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 you know, what I would really love is to, to raise enough money to pay off my house and then I would be financially set, right? That's what I would really want. But let's say that I, I, was, I was trying to get the money. I was trying to get the money. Now, how am I going to do this? Well, see, now what I could do is I, that's the, that's the real motive. But then I, I, I got to dress it up to be Christian, right? Please tell your friends and neighbors about this podcast so they can hear the teaching of God's word. They can hear these theological discussions so their lives can be changed and they can be equipped and no longer tossed to and fro with everyone. I've got to sell it like I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make a difference in their life. But the reality, maybe I'm just trying to get my house paid for. Maybe I'm just trying to get enough money to pay. see instead of just saying, hey, guys, here's situation. Here's situation. Um, I owe $100,000 on my home. And if I could get my mortgage paid off, I would be financially set. And that would be a big blessing to me. That would ensure that I can spend as much time doing this right here as possible. So, now, if I said it that way, people are like, that's ridiculous. I'm not going to give money for that. So I can, dis- I, can dis- I can disguise my motive to do that by saying, give money. Now, uh, now, of course, I just so that you know, whenever you give money, it doesn't come to me. It goes to the church, all right, to avoid that from happening, all right? But the point is, the point is, I could, I could disguise it as a godly idea. So, so I, could, I, could describe, I could disguise it as if I'm trying to reach people for Christ when really I'm trying to reach people because the more people listen, the greater chance of people giving. And the more people giving, the more money comes in. You see how it works. And, and I'm not saying that in every case, someone's motive is wrong. I'm just saying that we have to mortify not only the sexual desire, I, I, come on, whoever accomplishes that, and impure motives. Impure motives could go to a million different things. All right, now back to the text. Mortify, therefore, your members, which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanliness. Now, inordinate affection, inordinate affection, I think it describes it here as uh, lust. I think they're going to call it lust here, right? Lust. Now, let's look at what the Greek word is really quick. Yeah, I know I'm making myself, I'm making a lot of friends tonight with this, all right? Uncleanliness, inordinate affection. Inordinate affection is uh, pathos, pathos. And I was going to play it, but I'm running out of time. Inordinate, it's translated three times, inordinate affection or affection. And it means whatever befalls one, whatever it be, sad or joyous, 
a calamity, mishap, evil affliction, a feeling which the mind suffers, an affliction of the mind, emotion, passion, passionate deed used by the Greeks in either a good or bad sense. So pathos, I think I said pathos, pathos, I don't know why I said pathos, pathos means an inordinate affection. So it's an affection that is strong, but it's an obviously an affection for something bad. It can be, it could be an inordinate or it could be an inordinate or strong. It's a pathos. It's a passionate affection, but it's for something that is not right. It's for something that is contrary to God's word. It's going for your way versus God's way. It's an inordinate, a pathos, a strong, passionate affection or desire, Right? Now, evil concupiscence, and I'm going to do something really quick. I'm going to do something really quick because I don't even remember how I first said it. All right. It's this word. Concupiscence. 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 And it's the English translation is strong sexual desire or lust. So we're right back to sexual desire and lust. So we, so a lot of this is sexual immorality, but there's a lot of things that kind of go with it. It's a strong desire for anything contrary to what God wants. It's sec, it's fornication. It's sexual lust. It is impure motives. And we have to fight against these things. And I'm going to go back to Colossians 3. I'm going to go back to Colossians 3. Um, concupiscence, covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things say, say, uh, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh from the children of disobedience, in the which you also walked sometime when you lived in them. But now put off all these. And it tells you to put off more things. Now here's the thing. If you look at those things and you're like even 15 seconds honest with yourself, you realize you're going to struggle with these things for your, the rest of your Christian life, but you're in a never ending battle to the death with it. You are to mortify it. You are to seek its death. You are to seek to make it lose its power. You're trying to, you're trying to kill it off, but you're, you're never going to do so. So here's the way you have to understand it. In Christ, I've been, I'm dead. I'm dead to all of this. It's all been mortified. In Christ, I'm holy, perfect, righteous because of imputed righteousness. I'm perfect. In practice, I still have these things. So I've got to be seeking. I've got to be setting and I've got to be mortifying. And that mortifying is a never ending battle with it. And that's the Christian life. I'm trying to live out in practice. What is true positionally? Now here's the good news. You're going to fail practically over and over and over again. But your salvation is not dependent on that. Is dependent on the imputed righteousness, not the practical working out of the reality of that imputed righteousness. Now you say, well, that you're, you're making an excuse saying you can do anything. I'm just telling you the facts. My salvation is based off an imputed righteousness, but we are to strive and fight. We are to strive and fight. We are to mortify this. We are to put it to death. But look at that list and tell me how well you do. Come on. I mean, I can't even get, I, I, I didn't even say the word concupiscence right, right. I said it incorrectly. I think I said concupiscence. I don't even remember. 
So if I don't even say concupiscence right, well then, I mean, (laughs) it's an illustration of if I can't even say the word right, imagine trying to live it out where you're putting these things to death and fighting against it. Right? If concupiscence is strong sexual lust and desire, just think of how many people have struggled with that their whole Christian life in some way, shape, or form. No matter how holy they want to put forth, hey, guys, I never have a lustful thought. Never. It's, well, you know, maybe that's enough. Maybe, maybe congratulations. Maybe you have somehow put that to death. But trust me, there's plenty of others there that you, you struggle with. So how do we reconcile this? Let me make it very clear. In Christ, your position, you're united. What's the reality? You're dead. You were, or you were crucified. You were dead. You were buried. And you rose again. And you're seated at the right hand of God the Father. That is your positional standing. And you are co- and the imputed righteousness of Christ have been incred- accredited to your account. So you're perfect. You're holy. You're righteous. You're all of these things. But in practice, you're living a life where you still have this flesh and you got to fight against it. You got to be setting your mind and you got to be, you got to be seeking those things above, setting your affections on, on things in Christ. You've got to be trying to live it. You've got to be mortifying the flesh. You got to be mortifying concupiscence. You got to be mortifying lust and desire and impure motives. You got to be fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting against it. But it will never be perfect. And anyone who tells you that it will or, any, or anyone says you can do it perfectly, they're lying. And if they even make it sound like you can, it's the, the Christian life is the never-ending battle of living out practically what is true positionally, and it will always be imperfect. I'll stop there. I'll stop there. And I apologize, one, for almost losing my voice. I don't know what happened. Two, two, for messing up concupiscence. I'm sorry that I messed that up. But guess what it demonstrated once again? And I will use it as an illustration because we've been talking a little bit about this lately. Remember my podcast on perfectionism? No matter how hard I try. Look, I try to mortify. Think of it this way. I try to mortify my podcasting mistakes. I do. I don't want to lose my voice in the middle of a live broadcast and have to press the mute button so I can cough. I don't want to do that. I don't want to, all of a sudden, like I'm reading one, I've read one translation and all of a sudden I switch over to another translation and I'm blindsided by concupiscence. And I'm like, How, wait, I know this word. What is this? And stumble over it. I don't want to do that. I don't. So I try to mortify. I try to put to death all of those mistakes, but they constantly rise back up. They show up in different ways and it's a constant battle. And even if I, even if I get victory over one, another one's going to show up. Now, that's the reality of trying to do podcasting and trying to mortify your mistakes. But in Christianity, there's a different aspect to it because it, think of it this way. In Christ, I'm the perfect podcaster. I never make a mistake and I speak fluently and, excel, and I am an excellent communicator who can enunciate and articulate everything perfectly. But I know it's a horrible illustration. But it's the best I can come up with. Right? That's true practically. Positionally, I'm trying to mortify all the mistakes that are still very much there in my flesh. There you go. You can email me your thoughts. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. 
newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. Wow. What happened to my voice? I don't know. Everyone have a great night. God bless.